Well, Jesus really got the ball rolling last week, finally calling disciples to join him. He calls two sets of brothers who are all business partners. These professional fishermen are Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. He also calls Philip and his friend Nathaniel. A note on geography here. The Sea of Galilee is not actually a sea. It's a huge freshwater lake and is sometimes called the Lake of Gennesaret. So don't get confused. The different accounts switch back and forth between these two names. We know that John's account um, tells us, John tells us that most, if not all of these new disciples are from the lakeside town of Bethsaida, which is basically the next town over from where Jesus lives in Capernaum. The new disciples follow Jesus back to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath rolls around, they all troop into the local synagogue together. This synagogue is large and impressive. It was astounding to see so much of it still standing when I went to Israel, and just to walk in it and know that I was walking where Jesus walked. <laughs> that was amazing. Of course, all the people crowd into the synagogue to hear Jesus teach. He teaches differently than anyone they've ever heard. He teaches as if he has the power and authority to act, as if this is his jurisdiction. And immediately, a man possessed by an unclean spirit starts shouting at him. Now, we're going to hear the phrase unclean spirit a lot in the New Testament. Akatharto. The root here, the kathar part, means something that is pure and clean, not mixed with something else. In theological terms, as it's used in the New Testament, it would mean our spirits as they are created and intended to be. That kathar is pure, without something disturbing mixed in, without something warning, warping us. But the prefix a, Akathar means against. Ah means against. So with the ah prefix, the word means a spirit that is actively against what is pure and clean within us. It is a spirit that is mixing in destructively, destructively for us and for those around us. So this is new language in our study. Describing the world in terms of spirits and angels and demons and heaven and hell is all part of the culture of this time. This is how the people of the day normally communicate with each other about the concepts of good and evil. In the Roman and Greek worlds especially, a pantheon of capricious and meddlesome gods are personified. These terms begin to enter the culture and common vocabulary of Israel during the period in between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, as the Jews came under the rule of the Persians, then the Greeks, and finally the Romans. Some terms were familiar to, to them already. For example, heaven is a term used all over the Hebrew Bible to refer to both the physical skies as well as the place 
where God dwells. It's used both ways, same word, both meanings. And in the Hebrew Bible, heaven is connected to earth. The ancient Hebrews imagined God sitting on his throne in heaven with the earth as his footstool. And the angels, of course, were historically a big part of God's communication with people in the Hebrew Bible. But angels were seen as God's messengers. There are only a few very rare instances in the Hebrew Bible of a reference to an evil spirit. That term is, in the Hebrew Bible at least, is mostly used in talking about King Saul's inexplicable behavior towards David. Outside of that, when a spirit is talked about in the Hebrew Bible, it is almost always the spirit of God or the spirit of wisdom. It's not until the time in between the Old and New Testaments that all these negative connotations and words about demons and hell enter the common theological vocabulary of the Jews. This new theological vocabulary is the vocabulary Jesus grows up with. It is the vocabulary the gospel writers grow up with. So don't get lost in this cultural wrapping paper. There has always been good and evil. Cultures over time use different words and images to express these concepts. So remember to think of these various words as concepts, as cultural personifications of good and evil. So this man, possessed by an unclean spirit, starts shouting at Jesus, saying, What are we to you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Now, this is the first of many times we'll see evil recognize Jesus as Lord. Now, this is real. Evil does indeed recognize God and is afraid. Whether you choose to take these stories literally or whether you prefer allegorical in interpretations, good and evil are quite real. And Jesus has something to say about them. Jesus commands the spirit, silence, come out of him. And the man is seized with convulsions and with a shriek, the spirit comes out of him. Now, this is definitely not your normal Sabbath service in synagogue. The people are astounded and start murmuring. This is a new teaching. And he backs up what he says by ordering unclean spirits to come out and they actually obey him. You can imagine how quickly the rumors about Jesus spread. Afterwards, Jesus and his disciples do what everyone does after church. They go out to lunch. Fortunately, Simon Peter's in-laws live right next to the synagogue. I got to see the excavations of those ruins when I was there. Simon Peter's mother-in-law lives just about a block from the synagogue. But when Jesus and the disciples arrive for lunch, they find that Simon Peter's mother-in-law is ill in bed with a fever. Of course, Jesus goes right up to her, rebukes the fever, and takes her hand and helps her up. And at that moment, she is healed and is able to attend to her guests. 
Of course, by the time the sun goes down, the entire town is clamoring at the door. They bring everyone who is ill or demon-possessed. There's that language again. That term seems so strange to us. But all we need to remember is that people can have sicknesses that are physical and sicknesses that are invisible. We all carry both kinds of sicknesses. This is the reality these ancient writers are trying to address when they use this language. The point is that God wants to make us whole in every way, not just physically, but to heal us from all of our other trauma. And Jesus spends the entire evening healing people. Mark says Jesus drives out many demons, but would not let them speak because they know who he is. Now remember, Mark's gospel is the earliest one, and his story is based on it being a secret that Jesus is the Son of God. His gospel is all about how that secret is finally revealed. And it is in Mark that the various references to keeping healings a secret originate. And Luke just copies those passages pretty much verbatim from Mark, sometimes adding a little bit of elaboration like the shriek from the demon as it came out. Matthew copies them too, and as we would expect, adds how all this demonstrates how Jesus fulfills old messianic prophecies. In his version of the story, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 53:4. He took our weaknesses and bore our sicknesses. Now, this line is from an entire chapter of famous messianic prophecy about how we all saw the disease and affliction the Messiah bore, and we thought the Messiah was being punished by God. That's how the ancient people have always seen illness and hardship. They've always seen it as a punishment by God or the gods, depending on who they worshiped. But this prophecy goes on to say, but we were wrong. We were the ones who had gone astray. He was killed because of our own wickedness. He knew that and let them kill him anyway. Notice that Jesus will not be crucified as some sort of punishment by God. Jesus will be crucified, according to the Hebrew Bible anyway, because of people's own wickedness. The prophecy ends by saying, the Lord let this happen. But even so, after the Messiah suffers, he will see life and be completely satisfied. Through his wisdom, he will cleanse us, make us righteous, and he will bear the heavy load of our wickedness. And all of this cleansing and making us righteous and bearing the heavy load of our wickedness, all of that is part and parcel of Jesus' ministry, even now, um, even now. He will pour out his life to the death. Therefore, even though he is seen as small and sinful, the Lord will give him a share among the great and the strong. And that is exactly what will happen to Jesus. His ministry is hard work. He bears burdens. It will take great courage for him to persist. And it will culminate in Jesus' torture and death as a prisoner, 
despised by both the Romans and the religious elite. So you can see by taking the prophecy as a whole, that at least in this particular prophecy, we understand that the Messiah is killed because we do that to him. We are the ones who despised and rejected him. And he pours out his life for us anyway, ministering to us, healing us, and teaching us in every single minute until his very last breath. After this, Jesus travels throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues, telling people the good news that God is ready to heal and restore them and bring them all home to him. And Jesus backs up this message of God's compassion with miracles, billboards from God to prove that what he is saying is true. And huge crowds follow him everywhere. They may not be able to read, but they can definitely understand these kinds of signs. It is exhausting work, and Jesus often has to get up before dawn and go into the countryside, away from the houses and people, so he can pray and talk to God about all of this. Every day is packed with people listening to him teach, and I bet most of them are there just so they can have a chance at being healed. I wonder if that was ever discouraging to Jesus. At one point, a leper falls on the ground before him saying, Lord, if you want to, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I do want to. And he touches the man. And immediately the man is cured of his skin disease. As Mark tells the story, Jesus tells the man to keep this a secret, but to show himself to the priest and make the sacrifices according to the law. That keeping it a secret part is the part we have come to recognize as part of Mark's literary device. And both Matthew and Luke copy this story pretty much verbatim from Mark. But what I found interesting is this last bit that Jesus adds. Jesus says that by fulfilling the requirements of the law of Moses, that is by showing himself to the priest and making the sacrifices, the man will be a testimony to the priest and presumably the rest of the people, meaning it will be proof to them that what Jesus is doing is of God and is in complete fulfillment of the law. This is a really big point. Jesus wants the priest. He's sending them a sign. He's healed somebody. He's sending this person to go do all the things required by the law and do them, um, show himself to the priest so that the priest can understand that Jesus is on their side. Jesus is on the side of the law, on the side of the prophets, on the side of God. After this is one of my very favorite stories in all of scripture. Jesus is back home in Capernaum and people are crowding everywhere. It's a total mob scene. It is so crowded that people can't even get in the door to hear Jesus teach. And you know, half the folks there are sick or dying and literally everyone needs healing of some sort or other. Well, there's a group of four guys who bring their paralyzed friend on his mat and try to get him in to be healed by Jesus. But it's totally hopeless. 
That is, until they get the bright idea of climbing up the outer stairs to the roof of the house. Most houses of that day have like a sort of patio upstairs on the roof that's accessed by an outdoor stairway. And the family goes up there to enjoy the lake breezes. So these four wrangle their friend and his mat up to the roof and then start digging a hole in the roof right over where Jesus is teaching. It's, it cracks me up. I imagine Jesus has to stop talking. Like everybody's attention is on the debris falling on their heads. As soon as the hole is big enough, the four guys lower their friend right to Jesus' feet. I think they should definitely get style points for this one. Jesus is impressed for sure. Not so much by their creativity and persistence as by what is motivating their actions. He is impressed by their faith that if they can just get their friend to Jesus, that Jesus will heal him. But instead of healing him, Jesus says to the man, take courage. Your sins have been sent away, forgiven, banished. That's an unusual thing to say. But this, we will come to find out, is very much like Jesus. Jesus sees us in our totality. Jesus sees all of our needs. And this man's inner need, his his guilt over whatever sins he has committed in the past, this need is his greatest need. I can imagine Jesus looking with such compassion deep into this man's eyes and the man welling up with tears at the words of forgiveness, forgiveness from God, forgiveness of himself. This is the greatest gift Jesus has to give us. It is more precious than any healing of our body. Our bodies are only temporary clothing, but our souls are eternal. And it is the healing of our soul that gives us life. Nevertheless, all the scribes in the room can see is that Jesus is forgiving sins and is therefore blaspheming. I mean, how can he presume to do what God alone can do? They don't say anything, but you know their bodies stiffen. There are gasps. Jesus knows what they're thinking. He says, why are you holding evil in your hearts? Which Do you think it is easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? Well, I want you to know that the son of man does indeed have the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus turns around, says to the paralyzed man, get up, walk. And he does. The man gets up, picks up his mat, walks right out the door, astounding everyone. And Everyone is filled with awe and begins praising God. I love this story. Everything Jesus does points people to God. But let's go back and look at that new sort of weird title that Jesus threw in there. Jesus called himself Son of Man. Now, Matthew actually misses a trick here. 
This is a quote from a messianic prophecy in Psalm 80. I'm quoting from the NIV here. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. So this is the psalmist speaking to God, saying, let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. I'm wondering if Matthew skips this quote because in its original context, it could definitely be argued that it's talking about Israel rather than the Messiah. But from a Christian point of view, this prophecy is definitely messianic. Elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, the Son of Man is only used when God or an angel is talking to the hum- to a human. They call him Son of Man. Both Ezekiel and Daniel are called Son of Man in that context. And in the New Testament, Jesus uses this term consistently to refer to himself. I think Jesus calls himself Son of Man intentionally to make it clear that he is identifying not only as the Messiah, but also as part of Israel, and most of all, as a human being just like us. Jesus is emphasizing he is fully and completely human. After this, Jesus continues his ministry in Galilee, wandering up and down along the lakeshore with hordes of people following him everywhere. One day, Jesus comes to a toll booth, a place where you have to pay taxes to support the ruler's building projects and to satisfy the tribute required by Rome. The tax collectors represent everything that is bad about Roman occupation. They are everywhere. The taxes are already burdensome to these poor farmers and fishermen, but the tax collectors make it worse. They extort money over and above what is required, and they live in comfort on those ill-gotten gains. So naturally, the tax collectors are fiercely hated. So you can imagine the consternation among the disciples when Jesus tells the tax collector, come, follow me. I can just hear the other disciples saying, are you kidding me, a tax collector? But the tax collector, whose name is Levi, and is also called Matthew, yes, our Matthew, the one who eventually writes this book, he is absolutely excited to be called by Jesus. At this point, it's an honor, right? Jesus is a big celebrity. Matthew throws a huge banquet to celebrate and invites all his friends to come meet Jesus. Of course, Matthew's friends are other tax collectors and people like that. It's like inviting the mafia to dinner. Immediately, the Pharisees confront Jesus' disciples and say, what is Jesus doing eating with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus overhears them, and Jesus has something to say about this. Why, indeed, does Jesus come to the sinners and the despised and the wicked extortionists? Jesus says, I have come to heal the sick, not the healthy. I have come to call the sinners to God, not the righteous. Matthew then adds these words to his version of the story. It's only in his version. You 
you Pharisees, you better go read up on that prophecy you say you know so well. Go read the words of Hosea, where God says, I want mercy, not sacrifice. This is such a great quote. And it would have infuriated the Pharisees who know its full context. The rest of the prophecy says, the Lord has torn us to pieces, but will revive us in two days and restore us to life on the third day so we can dwell with him. To a Christian, this is a clear reference to the resurrection of Jesus on the third day and to our participation in that. To a Jew, this is part of the end time promise to restore Israel. But notice the three-day imagery. It's going to come into play several times in the New Testament. The prophecy goes on to explain what the Lord has torn us to pieces means. God answers, I chopped you to pieces with the words of my prophets because I want mercy, not sacrifice. I want you to acknowledge me as God, not offer meaningless burnt offerings. You priests are murderers. You lie in ambush waiting for your victims, end quote. Ouch, the Pharisees have got to be steaming mad. Apparently, Jesus sees right through the outward piety of the Pharisees, just as he sees into the hearts of the tax collectors. Notice how it is that the Lord tore the people to pieces. It was by the words of the prophets. This is far more important than any physical consequences Israel suffered at the hands of their enemies that they interpreted as punishment from God. God has always aimed for the heart. This whole prophecy is about how the Lord cares about mercy and justice, not outward appearances or what happens to your city or your physical. It's God is interested in your heart, even as he offers healing to your physical situation. I think that at this point, Jesus is beginning to travel beyond the area of Galilee, perhaps moving down toward the Jordan towards Jerusalem. Some of John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and ask, how come John taught us to fast regularly? And the Pharisees fast regularly, but your disciples don't fast at all. And Jesus says, well, the difference is that my disciples are with the bridegroom. The wedding party can't fast at the celebration. Trust me, there will come a time when I will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. I imagine this goes right over the heads of John the Baptist's disciples. They probably have no clue what Jesus is talking about. And even if they catch on that Jesus is supposed to be the bridegroom, I'm sure they're totally lost beyond that and have all the same questions we might have. But then Jesus says something even more confusing. He says, everyone knows you cannot sew a patch of new cloth onto an old worn out garment. The strong new cloth will tear an even bigger hole in the garment. And everyone knows you can't put new wine in old wineskins or the old skins will burst and both the skins and the wine will be ruined. No, you must pour new wine 
into new wineskins. And Luke adds, no one who drinks the old wine wants new wine. They think the old wine is better. So all of this is kind of confusing imagery. We need to think about this some more. So let's use our breakout section sessions to talk about what Jesus has just said. Welcome back. Welcome back. So what did y'all think? What came up? Erica was in mid-sentence when we left. (laughs) Finish your sentence. No, no, I was, I think we were going, talking about the wineskins, the third question. And, you know, what is it? We've all been taught a certain way to believe. And this class has helped us kind of begin to have new perspective. And for some of us, it's been eye-opening. It's been encouraging. Wine, wine skin bursting, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) But we were saying that. For some people, it's too difficult to accept. It, it might have been too difficult to accept Jesus' teaching because we even see it with friends and family of like, well, if I believe this to be true, then then I will have to then reconsider everything I've been taught. And for them to reconsider everything they've been taught is too scary. And, and it's, it's too much of a cost for them because then they lose control of what they've always believed in what they've been assured of so it goes back to the idol of certainty (laughs) like most people when they started to see jesus new way of teaching it was i think woody described it as radical and some that that could have been very like too much for them to grasp and to believe it's unsafe and I think that in addition to the the idol of certainty, which is certainly active, um, I, I think that also there is in some ways not a level of trust that God is going to be there in the questioning. That if all the scaffolding of everything else that they've believed crumbles that God will be there. I think sometimes God has become the scaffolding rather than God. And also I think tied to that is that, you know, we've been learning throughout this whole class that God will make a way. And yet it feels like we've kind of landed currently in Christianity on God made a way and there will never be another way. And so it's interesting for me to even go, no, God will make a way like present tense, you know, future tense versus God made a way. And that is the only way that we can see relationship with God. So like the, the new wine that is coming into, in, into my current moment is just seeing God in such a much more, a, a larger, more compassionate, more creative, personal, um, but I think it took this class to help my wineskin soften a little bit, you know, to have a, know that I had a soft place to land similar to what you just described that God and others around me could help me, um, I guess, navigate and survive the questioning that I thought might kill me. And I think that Jesus is in all of that too. You know, I, I think that 
where God is, Jesus is, where Jesus is, God is. Um, I think that that we've kind of locked Jesus in a little box. You know, I've got something in going on in my life right now with somebody that I care about very much. And I'm just going to leave it at that because we're recording and I don't want to go into detail. But um, who is struggling with the idea that my beliefs have changed and therefore I must be a heretic. And I have assured him that my core beliefs have not changed. Um, But he particularly is upset about the LBGTQ idea Mm -hmm. and that he thinks it's important that I shouldn't be on the page I'm on. And I think that's the, the, the wineskin thing and, and what Erica and Ellen were saying is on point with what we're going through right now. And I'm struggling with how to answer him. And right now I'm just letting it sit because I don't know what to say. And I do, I have, um, a meeting actually via phone this afternoon with Stan Mitchell, which I'm looking forward to very much. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I'm, I lucked into that. I guess, well, I'd say it's a God thing, but talking to him is, is um, I'm hopefully going to get some guidance, mm-hmm. but I think more than anything, he'll probably listen because that's what he does very well. <laughs> you know, but, I was watching the uh, 1946 um, documentary um, about the mistranslation that shifted a culture. Um and that goes through the scholarly, you know, basis and how it actually happened that the word homosexual made it into the Bible, various Bible translations and how it was later retracted, but it was already in all these other ones. And, um, and, and there is a, a antagonist in the, in the documentary who happens to be the father of the, um, director and um he is just so heavy-handed old school just cannot even really listen you know and um or consider any possible way but his way and um and i think that when somebody is in a place of not being able to listen, um, especially about that particular issue, my recommendation to them is that they probably don't actually know enough gay Christians and that they really need to just stop and go out and begin observing fruit in lives the way Jesus told us to. And after they've done that for a year, after they have gone and observed as and gotten to know and really seen the fruit of the lives of gay Christians, 
then come back and let's have this conversation. What what I would say to Shirley is that God is, is after him too. God is chasing after him and will enlighten him, hopefully at some point, and it's not really your responsibility. Absolutely. That's true. Although I know you're trying to retain the, the, the relationship, you know, outside of the issue. Um, right. Trying to retain the relationship. But absolutely. God pursues us all in exactly the right way. So talk to me more about um, new cloth, new wineskins. Did anybody talk about fasting? What, what else did y'all come up with? We spent almost the entire time on fasting. Oh. And um, the fact that they didn't need to fast because fasting serves several purposes. Mourning, you're mourning about somebody dying or something. Um, Repentance. And to hear God more clearly. And they were not mourning because he was with them. Um, they didn't need to repent because they were with him. And I mean, they may have needed to repent of some things to him, but they didn't need to fast to repent because they were with him. Um, and they didn't need to fast to hear his voice because they were with him. After he died and resurrected, went back to heaven, then they needed the fasting to hear him, to gain strength, to mourn him, you know, all of those things. And i have actually been thinking about, and I told my group this feasting versus fasting, that there's the difference, you know, in the words is simply the letter E. But um, I recently heard a nurse in my eye doctor's office who is indigenous and uh, a gentleman who didn't realize that said to her, happy Thanksgiving. And she said, well, I won't be celebrating that day. Um, I'm indigenous and that is a day of fasting for my people. And that hit me right between the eyes because while the rest of us are feasting for the indigenous people, which I have a little bit of that in me, um, it's a day of fasting, a day of mourning. And um, that really hit home when you asked this particular question because the purpose of feasting versus the purpose of fasting is so different. What about, what about Jesus calling himself the bridegroom? And we saw a, a scripture, I think last week, I get my weeks mixed up about the Lord, a, a prophecy from the old Testament about the Lord adorning the Messiah as bridegroom and bride. What does, who's getting married? What does that mean? <laughs> What's he talking about? Do we get bonus points for talking about that? <laughs> <laughs> Not on the sheet. A pill in the real class. You know that? <laughs> well, the church is called the Bride of Christ. But there's no sense of that anywhere in anything we've read up to now. If we stay in the context of what what Jesus has been doing and saying... What does that mean that he's the bridegroom? I think it's a celebration because he's here to fulfill the prophecy we don't even know yet. And that we should be excited and 
happy that this is taking place because that's how we would be for a bridegroom. We would be elated. We would come with gifts and we would be making merry with them. Absolutely. And a wedding is a union. Who or what is being joined in union? In a wedding? Pardon? Us. In a wedding? Us, yeah. It's us with who? With God. Yes. In the person of as embodied in Jesus. But the whole point of Jesus is that God wants to be in complete, intimate union with us. And Jesus is adorned as the bridegroom and the bride. He is both God and human. That just gives me goosebumps that that, you know, that he that he fulfills that prophecy like that. I think, too, it also shows that. um, One, the God is genderless because if he's the bridegroom and the bride. And also encompasses all genders. All genders, mm-hmm. all the genders, all and it also, yeah, and it also incorporates that men and women are equal. That's a concept. <laughs> yeah, that's going to take a couple thousand years to get worked out. <laughs> I think we've been working on it for a couple thousand years. <laughs> I think it might take a couple thousand more. <laughs> What else did y'all see in 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 these um, in this imagery? Well, we With- talked a little bit about the new cloth and the old worn out garment, and we discussed some, like Woody said, that Jesus's concepts were so radical that it it was incomprehensible to the people who had been under this, what the top of the sheet says, the diet of a demanding God, strict rules of worship and oppressive religious hierarchies, which was the norm, the old cloth. And here he comes with his new message, which is completely putting things on its head. So what is, so is the new cloth, what is the new cloth versus the old cloth? Is it the law versus grace and mercy? But Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law. We haven't got to that yet, but he does say that. Well, yeah, but he came to fulfill it. But, Mm -hmm. but still in the mindset, the old cloth was the old mindset, the old, the, it was the law and punishment. It was very um, strict. There was no room for grace and mercy in the law. So let's go back to what um, Erica started us off with then. Imagine ourselves as one of those people clinging tightly to what we've always believed and everything's pat and it's all in a nice little box and a little train running on the track, you know. It cannot be derailed. What does new cloth 
an old cloth mean to that person? Well, to me, I mean, the, the basis of, to me, the basis of Jesus' new cloth is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbors yourself. Now, those were also the original old laws, but they had gotten covered up so much mm. that they were no longer recognized or recognizable. And I guess what it, what he was saying was, He's going to fulfill the original old law, not all the stuff that had covered it up. So he's in both of these, he's not really changing the form. Clothing is still clothing. Wineskins are still wineskins. What is Jesus bringing to this? Maybe clarity. Because the old garments and wineskins were covered up by so many more extra stuff added to it that wasn't intended when Moses said it. And so he's trying to dig down, you know, put on a new cloth, take take off these old things that didn't go with the original law anyway, and they certainly don't go with the new law because you should be happy to be worshiping God, not scared of him. That is a true statement right there, Renee. <laughs> on, the, on the other hand, if you wanted to flip that on its head, um, because I'm puzzled by what Luke said about the old, the old is better. Um, when you think about clothing, old clothes are soft and they're comfortable and they fit us and we love them. And new cloth frequently is stiff and scratchy and needs to be sort of broken in, you know, just like shoes. I don't know about you, but I have difficult to fit feet. And so new shoes always pinched and they hurt until they're worn out. Um, And so it could be that what Jesus is saying is that the old cloth and the old wineskins were the original intention of the law and what all these years of argument about how do we fulfill the law to the minutia is actually putting all this new stuff on the old and and making it you know just kind of destroying the original point Hmm. i i agree with part of that um i think i think luke didn't say the old is better. He said, they say the old is better. And to me, what that means is kind of what you were saying, Marlene, that that the old stuff, the old rules, no matter how oppressive they were, they were familiar. They were comfortable. And, and trying to put on new clothes was going to inevitably feel uncomfortable. And I'm wondering, following your logic, if if what Luke is saying is that the, even though Jesus is standing there offering them brand new wine, complete with the new wine skin to hold it in, that some people are still going to hold on to that old. Just the way it was. Doesn't Absolutely. matter they're falling apart. Going to hold on to it. 
And to me, what Jesus is bringing is life. Just in both of these examples, Jesus is bringing life, new life, new usefulness, because I get the impression that the old wineskins and the old clothes were like ready for goodwill, you know? Uh, yeah. yeah, Erica, I think I think that what you were saying, I mean, I think that's one of the things that we find now, you know, in in these situations is, you know, there's this big warning about the slippery slope, that if you start thinking differently, understanding differently, talking differently, that you have just put your foot on the ice, it's going to lead you right to hell. Um, oh, I am right on that slippery slope. I tell you, I am going down the slide. Yeah, <laughs> but that's contrary to once saved, always saved. Right. That's what I have never understood. Is so you are once saved, always saved, and now you are you or aren't you? Right. New information and new perspective to evaluate the information that's available to us all, but has been presented in such a way that it's easily manipulated to have us be like sheep and follow just one path. Also, I think another part in there is you need to relearn certain things because I know when I was um, first starting on this path of deconstructing some of the stuff that I've been taught and, and believed it was really hard to give that stuff up. And it was scary. I remember how scared you were of being hurt again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was scared to death. I think, I think this supports my viewpoint more than this new perspective I'm gaining. It helps support my viewpoint that I've held for a long time and just not really um, articulated very often around people. You know? You kind of keep it to yourself. How can this and this and how can this and this? And when you have those questioning moments, you want to keep that to yourself. You don't want to share that. I know I shared my thoughts with someone who's very fundamentalist. And they just looked at me like deer in the headlights, like something bad was going to happen to me. And I just went, well, I don't think so. I don't agree. And I felt confident in myself. And now I have something to back it up. This last couple of years has really reinforced that. And that's an important, um, that's important. I, I would, I would, it would be, I think I said in the lesson that Jesus always pointed people towards God. And it would be, you don't have to raise your hands or anything, but I, I, you know, I would love to see hands for people who, and you don't have to, people who feel closer to God as a result of these couple of years 
as opposed to and in your in your in this journey that has been kind of just we're just going to ask the questions you know um and and that that god has been faithful i think to each and every one of you i think god has been faithful to be there when you asked really hard questions and still god was there i hope that god has been more and more present for you um looks like Martha had a comment. Martha says, and Jesus was not about making people anxious about their belief in Jesus. Right? Right. So true. So true. Well, we're coming up on um, the end of our time. Were there more other thoughts that came up for you? Okay, I want to let you know that um, uh, no class, obviously, next week is Thanksgiving, but I will be traveling to both to Nashville and to Dallas the following week. And so there's no way I'm going to have time to do a class the following week either. So we're going to take a two week break and I'll put it in the email. Um, Also, the video um, of today's class will be late. I can I can tell you that unless my internet miraculously heals. That video is going to be late because there's not enough hours left in the day to do the things I need to do. So it will be Friday or Saturday um, this time. And then we will pick up again in two weeks. Y'all have a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Absolutely. Bye. Bye, Martha. See ya.